0: episode here on the page turners uh, well let me introduce myself because y'all know I hate going uh, <laughs> just rambling with useless uh, what I would deem useless stuff but for those who may be listening to this podcast for the first time and I'll explain why here momentarily why that would be a possibility. My name is Elgin Bailey. I am the host of the Page Turns Podcast, a podcast where we take a book and we literally walk page by page, line by line. I'll read and then I'll provide commentary throughout the book. Uh, I typically will pick a book that... uh, Sparks my interest via a number of factors, actually, a number of reasons why I would pick a book. Uh, If you are a fan of audiobooks, if you are a fan of uh, critical thinking, (laughs) if you're a fan of podcasts that offer great commentary, um, this is the place for you. I'm typically going to be here in front of you guys. Uh, And if you're listening, you know, (laughs) I'm only going to be here, particularly each episode is anywhere between 30 to 40 minutes, never longer than that. I like to get in and get out. Um, But this is the page turners. Uh, This is what I do. I love to read. If you are watching the video of this, uh, you'll see a few of my books behind me. Um, there's just a few, but I love to read. I love to talk about books. I love to do all those things. Uh, I said, if this is your first time listening, there's exciting news. Uh, first I want to give a, a shout out to, uh, keystone uh, for all of their support in distributing the PayStars podcast, I wish them nothing but success in all of their endeavors going forward. Uh, sincerely appreciate those folks over there. Um, but there's some exciting new news. Uh, I am also a host or one of the hosts of a, another podcast. Uh, the In the Black Podcast, Informed, Intelligent, In the Black. Uh, I am one of three hosts over there, three uh, working class black men who like to get together on a podcast and talk about life and news and topics and just from a critical thinking, humorous black male perspective, right? So one of the visions that has always been uh, shout out to my brother, Sean, for uh, this vision of having an independent uh, black media network. So this podcast, along with the Into the black podcast, are part of the fearless network uh more details will be coming forth as we unpack uh, the branding the logo the mission all that type of stuff but taste Learners podcast will now be distributed by fearless network in conjunction with the in the black podcast so exciting stuff man exciting stuff Uh this is season five of the page turners. Um, again, for you first time listeners, if um each season represents a particular book, this season five, uh, we are doing um geez, I'm sorry. We're doing the revolution will not be funded beyond the nonprofit industrial complex. Uh it's a collection of essays written about the dangers of nonprofits. Uh, in no way, shape, or form are we saying that all nonprofits are evil or or are doing evil work. What we are saying is the origins of nonprofits uh, are insidious. And at some point in time, in the very near future, I'll be linking all of the former episodes of the Pace Turners. Uh, so when you click on um, this one, you'll be able to find all of the previous episodes. So you won't be missing much. But again, i like to give you guys 30 minutes of, uh, of hard-hitting information. I know it's a lot of podcasts out there, man, that I don't like wasting anyone's time. So with that being said, this is Season 5, Episode 7. Welcome to The Pace. Right on, right on, right on, right on. How do I feel like I'm going to sneeze? So I should turn my face away from the camera because I don't want to sneeze into the mic because it's going to be really loud. Hmm. Oh, thank you for that. God bless you. So again, man, uh, season five, episode seven. uh, This particular book is The Revolution Will Not Be Funded Beyond the Nonprofit Industrial Complex. Uh, Really exciting to be reading this particular text. Uh, As you join us with this particular episode, you can find this book. You can find a PDF of this book online. You can buy this book. I highly recommend this text. Uh, I highly recommend it. Highly recommend it for... A number of reasons, and specifically for a number of people. If you are someone who is a community organizer who worked for a nonprofit, uh, if you've ever worked for a nonprofit or considered working for a nonprofit, this text would be incredibly enlightening to help you navigate some of the things that you will see working for a nonprofit. So let's get into 30 minutes of. Text starting on page 35 and i read my point at the risk of stating the historically obvious is that the production of the white liberal and now ostensibly multicultural though still white liberal hegemonic non-profit industrial complex has actually facilitated and continues to facilitate the violent state-organized repression of radical revolutionary elements within the Black and Third World liberation movements of the late 1960s and early 1970s, as well as what remains of such liberation struggles today. In other words, the symbiosis between the racist state And white civil society that I discussed above is not simply a relationship of convenience. It is a creative relation of power that forms a restricted institutional space in which dissent movements may take place under penalty of militarized state repression, a political violence that has, though the pedagogical work of the state, won a broad approval from U.S. civil society whole generally. Let me pause there for a minute. This particular essay is written by the great Dylan Rodriguez, one of the dopest dudes out there, man. Uh, Follow him on all social media platforms. You can actually find a dope discussion that we had with him on the In the Black podcast. I highly recommend you follow him. I highly recommend his wonderful text that he's just released earlier this year. White Reconstruction, Dylan Rodriguez. The title of this particular essay that we're reading today is The Political Logic of the Nonprofit Industrial Complex. The Political Logic of the Nonprofit Industrial Complex. And I read, I should be clear in what I am Im- implicating here. I'm not speaking narrowly of the openly conservative and right wing foundations, such as the Heritage Foundation. That so many on the established left unanimously agree are fundamentally reactionary or politically retrograde. Rather, I'm speaking to the punitively kind, benevolent, humanist, humanist, and humanitarian liberal progressive foundation that this very same established left relies on. That is the same foundations that often fund this left's political work, scholarship, and activism, like Ford, Soros. Mellon, for example, and I want to read that point again because it's very important. Okay, I want you to hear what he's saying. I should be clear in what I'm implicating here. I'm not speaking narrowly of the openly conservative and right-wing foundations such as the Heritage Foundation that so many on the establishment left unanimously agree are fundamentally reactionary or politically retrograde. Rather, I'm speaking to the putatively, kind, benevolent, humanist, humanitarian, liberal, progressive foundation that this very same established left relies on. That is the same foundation that often. Hold on. Yeah. The same foundation that often funds this left's political work, scholarships and activism. Like Ford, Soros, Mellon, for example. It's crazy. It seems that when one attempts to engage a critical discussion regarding the political problems of working with these and other foundations, and especially when one is interested in naming them as gently repressive evil cousins of the more prototypically evil right-wing foundation, the establishment left becomes profoundly defensive of its financial patrons. Hmm, I wonder why they become defensive. And I think he's going to explain it to us. I would argue that this is a liberal progressive vision that marginalizes the radical revolutionary and proto revolutionary forms of activism, insurrection, and resistance that refuse to participate in the Soros charade of shared values and are uninterested in trying to improve the imperfect. The social truth of the existing society is that it is based on the production of massive, unequal, hierarchically organized disenfranchisement suffering and death of those populations who are targeted for containment and political social liquidation, a violent social order produced under the dictates of democracy, peace, security, and justice that form the historical political foundations of the very same white civil society on which the N-P-I-C-Left is based. (laughs) If we take seriously, for the sake of argument, the political analysis articulated by the Palestinians struggling against the Israeli occupation, or that of imprisoned radical intellectual activists and their free world allies desperately fighting to dismantle and abolish the prison industrial complex, or that of indigenous people worldwide who, to paraphrase Hunani K. Trask, are literally fighting against their own planned obsolescence. Then it should become clear that the Soros philosophy of the open society, along with other liberal foundations' social imaginaries, are at best philanthropic vanities. At worst, we can accuse the Soros, Ford, Mellon, and Rockefeller foundations and their ilk of NGOs and nonprofit organizations of accompanying and facilitating these massive structures of human domination, which simply cannot be reformed or reconciled in a manner that legitimates anything approaching a vision of liberation or radical freedom. While many professional intellectuals, academics, lawyers, teachers, progressive policy think tank members and journalists, community-based social change organizations, Non-profit progressive groups, student activists, and others in the establishment left pay some attention to the unmediated violence waged by state formations, whether official agents of state military power or its unofficial liaisons. On targeted individuals and communities, the implicit theoretical assumptions guiding much of this political intellectual work have tended to pathologize state violence. Rendering as a scary, illegitimate offspring of the right wing hegemony. The logical extension of this political analysis is the notion that the periodic, spectacular militarization of direct relations of force are the symptomatic and extreme evidence of some degree set of societal flaws. And let me stop right here because we see this consistently, right? Every single time that something happens, uh, police violence, right? Police violence. It's always an individual act, right? Instead of a symptom of a larger issue, right? And we see that all the time consistently. And I read, in fact, the treatment of state violence of a non-essential facet of the U.S. social formation is a discursive requirement for the establishment left strained attempts at political dialogue with its more hegemonic political antagonists, whether they are police, wardens, judges, legislators, or foundations. In this way... A principled and radical opposition to both the material, actuality, and political legitimacy of the racist U.S. state violence, which is inescapable, a principled and radical opposition to the existence and legitimacy of the U.S. state itself, is constantly deferred in favor of more practical or winnable campaigns and demands. There is thus a particular historical urgency in the current struggle for new vernaculars that disarticulate the multilayered and taken for granted state practices of punishment, repression, and retribution from common notions of justice, peace, and the good society. Arguably, it is this difficult and dangerous task of disarticulation, specifically the displacement of a powerful socially determined law and order common sense that remains the most untheorized dimension of contemporary struggles for social transformation a generalized climate of moral defensiveness, political retreat and pragmatic anti-radicalism permeates the current critical discourse such that the political and historical ground ceded to the punitive state and its defender advocates excuse me Mitigates against the flowering of new and critical knowledge productions, antagonistic, radical, and proto-radical political practices spurred by the desire to resist and abolish the normalized violence and undeclared domestic warfare of the American state remain politically latent and deeply criminalized in the current social formation. listen to this while the establishment left conceptualized its array of incorporated entrepreneurial non-profit 501c3 organizations and NGOs as the fortified command center of progressive social justice movements within civil society I remain constantly disturbed by the manner in which this political apparatus, the NPIC perversely Reproduces a dialectic of death. That is, the NPIC's, and by extension, the establishment left's commitment to maintaining the essential social and political structures of civil society, meaning institutions, as well as ways of thinking, reproduces and enables the most vicious and insidious forms of state sanctioned oppression and repression. By way of my previous examples, Israeli occupation, mass-based imprisonment, and the ongoing genocide of indigenous peoples. I will conclude this essay with a historical allegory of sorts. Damn it. Okay. I have to write that down because that is something I definitely want to chew on again. Because that is phenomenal. And I'm gonna read it one more time for you. Okay. Because I think this is the this sums up the key point. And I read, this is page 37. While the establishment left conceptualized its array of incorporated entrepreneurial, nonprofit 501c3 organizations and NGOs as the fortified command center. Of progressive social justice movements within civil society, I remain constantly disturbed by the manner in which this political apparatus, the NPIC, perversely reproduces a dialectic of death. That is, the NPIC's and by extension the establishment left's commitment to maintaining the essential social and political structures of civil society, meaning institutions, as well as ways of thinking. Reproduces and enables the most vicious and insidious forms of state-sanctioned oppression and repression, by way of my previous examples: Israeli occupation, mass-based imprisonment, and the ongoing genocide of indigenous peoples. Right, right. Right? I mean, oh man. Okay. And I read Albert Minimi in his anti colonialist meditation, The Colonizer and the Colonized. I need to check that out, by the way. Let me. The Colonizer and the Colonized, 1965. The Colonizer and the colonized. Damn. Ooh. I'm going to have to check that out. 1965. All right. And I read. In his anti-colonialist meditation, the colonizer and the colonized, 1965, centrally addressed the problem of the presence that marked the typological white supremacist domination of the colony. The colonizer... Historically and prototypically, the categorical white man to whom many such theorists refer ultimately found the native indispensable. And not just because he could siphon and steal the native's labor and other natural resources, the native's indispensability was found rather in his or her bodily presence, which was nothing less than the affirmation of life's material materiality for the settler. Minnemi contends that it was through this very presence that whiteness found its form of articulation, its passage from the realm of imaginary to the grittiness of material relationship. Of the settler white man, Minnemi writes, he knew, of course, that the colony was not peopled exclusively by colonialists or colonizers. He even has some idea of the colonized from his childhood books. He has seen a documentary movie on some of their customs, preferably choosing to show their peculiarity, right? but the fact remained that those men belonged to the realms of the imagination. He had been a little worried about them when he too had decided to move to a colony, but no more so than he was about climate, which might be unfavorable, or the water which was said to contain too much limestone, suddenly these men were no longer a simple component of geographical or historical decor. They assumed a place in his life. He cannot even resolve to avoid them. He must constantly live in relation to them. For it is this very alliance which enables him to lead the life in which he decided to look for in the colonies. It is this relationship which is lucrative. Which creates privilege. Shit. Okay. There's two more pages left in this particular essay. And I want to finish this essay. uh, This particular episode. So I'm going to keep reading. So this episode might be a little longer than usual. But guess what? You'll be okay. (laughs) And I read, the white colonizer was consistently unsettled by the movement between the two primary requirements of the white colony and its underlying processes of conquest, the extermination of indigenous human societies and the political-cultural naturalization of that very same, deeply unnatural process. Minimi expounds on the dynamic and durable relationship between these forms of denomination. Mm -hmm. Domination, (laughs) ultimately arguing that the containment and strategic social and political elimination of targeted populations is inseparable from global ideology of Euro-American colonial domination that posits its site of conquest as infinitely and naturally available for white settlement. Here we might think about the connectiveness between Minimi's definition of colonial power relation and the current conditions of possibility for white civil society in the alleged aftermath of colonial epoch. Damn! And I read, the forced proximity between settlers and neighbors and natives, or white civil society and its resident aliens, entails a historically persistent engagement between categories of humans generally defined by the colonizer as existential opposites. This intimacy defines the core antisociality of colonial conquests and the living history it has constructed. That is, contrary to more vogel theorizations, the colonizer is not simply interested in ridding of the colonized, breaking them from their indigenous attachments to land, culture, and community, or exploiting their bodies for industry, domestic, or social labor. Minimis colonizer and liberation theorist Franz Fanon Settler also des- desires an anti social human relation, a structured dialogue with the colonized that performs a kind of auto erotic drama for the colonizer, a production of pleasure that both draws upon and maintains distinct power structures. Now, I think sometimes we get confused. We, we, we think about hatred and racism and all those things and we think of right we think of it as being all about hating skin color and you know we can eradicate these things if we talk about uh you know if we get to know each other if we develop a relationship that that education is the reason why that we're, we're failing in this capacity that you know that's That's the cause of it, but not, I think we lose sight of the fact that it's about power. Power is what drives these monsters. And I'm not to say that hatred is not in there somewhere that, but it's not the dominant component when it comes to these things. Okay. And I read. Such is the partial premise for Fanon's contemporaneous meditations on the war of social truth that rages beneath normalized violence of any such condition of domesticated domination and structural political dialogue. For Fanon, it is the Manchurian relationship between colonizer and colonizer, native and settler, that conditions the subaltern truths of both imminent and manifest insurgencies. Speaking to the anti-colonialist nationalism of Algerian revolution, Fanon writes, The problem of truth ought to be considered. In every age among the people, truth is the property of national cause. No absolute verity, no discourse on the purity of the soul can shake this position. The native replies to the living lie." Of the colonial situation by an equal falsehood, his dealings with his fellow nationals are open. They are strained and incomprehensible with regard to settlers. Truth is, that which hurries on the breakup of the colonialist regime, it is that which promotes the emergence of the nation. It is all that protects the natives and ruins the foreigners. In this colonialist context, there is no truthful behavior, and the good is quite simply that which is evil for them. Truth for Fanon Fanon is precisely that which generates and multiplies the historical possibilities of disruptive, subversive movement against colonial oppression. The evident rhetoric of oppositionality of the subaltering good that necessarily materializes evil or criminal in the eyes of domination offers a stunning departure from the language of negotiation dialogue progress moderation and peace that has become hegemonic in discourses of social changes and social justice inside and outside the united states perhaps most important the political language of opposition is premised on its open-endedness and contingency, a particular refusal to soothe the anxiety generated in the attempt to displace a condition of violent peace for the sake of something else, a world beyond agendas, platforms, funding structures, and po- practical proposals. There are no guarantees or arrogant expectations of an ultimate state of liberation waiting on the other side of politically immediate struggle against the settler colony, we might for a fleeting moment conceptualize the emergence of the nonprofit industrial complex as an institutionalization and industrialization of banal liberal political dialogue that constantly disciplines us into conceding the urgent challenges of political radicalism that fundamentally challenges the existence of the United States as white settler society. The non-profit industrial complex is not wholly unlike the institutionalized apparatus of neocolonialism in which former and potentially anti-colonial revolutionaries are professionalized and granted opportunities within a labyrinth state proctor bureaucracy that ultimately reproduces the essential coherence of the neocolonial relation of power itself. The nonprofit and industrial complex, well funded litany of social justice agendas, platforms, mission statements, and campaigns offers us a veritable smorgasbord of political guarantees that feeds on our cynicism and encourages a misled political faith that stridently bypasses the fundamental relations of dominance that structure our everyday existence in the United States, perhaps it is a time that we formulate critical strategies that fully comprehend the nonprofit industrial complex as the institutionalization of a relation of dominance and an attempt to disrupt and transform the fundamental structures and principles of a white supremacist US civil society as well as the U.S. racist state. And I want to read that one more time. Perhaps it is time that we formulate critical strategies that fully comprehend the nonprofit industrial complex as the institutionalization of a relation of dominance in an attempt to disrupt and transform the fundamental structures and principles of a white supremacist U.S. civil society, as well as the U.S. racist state, well, and there is citation after citation, so uh, I want everybody to to. I mean, listen, man. You want to check this book out? You, you really want to? Uh, I think it's. Phenomenal. I think it's incredibly helpful in this time. As Dylan was talking about how neo-colonialists professionalize radicals. One of the critiques of the non-profit industrial complex is that it's... Um, it de-radicalizes radicals, right? Folks who are interested in doing the work in communities across the country, fighting for causes, nonprofits deradicalize de-radicalize those folks. What happens is you, you get in there, you start doing the work, and you never get a chance to actually address the root cause of issues, right? You never get a chance to do that. And slowly, you begin to lose your radicality because you're so busy raking the leaves that you forget all about them damn trees that are consistently dropping those leaves. Another book that is worth checking out and worth reading is uh, Black Awakening in Capitalist America by the late, great Robert L. Wales. Highly recommend it. So ladies and gentlemen, again, thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Pacers Podcast. I am your host, Elgin Bailey. I appreciate you. I thank you all for all that you do. And until next time, we out.